I know of no greater blessing or spiritual privilege bestowed on us in Christ as his loving seekers. I know nothing greater than being shepherded by the Lord Spirit himself. Not only to know the desire of God's heart, but to be brought into God's heart. To sense in a very deep way the yearning, the longing in God for a counterpart. And then, as the Lord works himself into us, he makes our heart a duplication of his heart. And now in us, there is a longing, a yearning for the same thing. This precious realization, this deep and personal longing by the Lord's mercy and relentless inner working has been gradually increasing in me over the last 20-some years. But the yearning and the longing are not the end. And recently, by the Lord's tender care for his body, not for me as an isolated individual, for his body, I'm coming to realize something else. He wants us who are living with him in the divine romance, not only to live with this deep longing, he also wants to give us, he wants to give us an indescribably sweet foretaste of its fulfillment. I've come to realize that the dear brothers and sisters in the Lord's recovery who love the Lord, there's no question. And seek him because they love him. It's been impressed upon me that we all need something more in us than just the longing. The Lord wants to give us a very sweet foretaste. And it can only be that until we're raptured. A foretaste of what the fulfillment will be like. 
He doesn't want us to live simply in endless, unfulfilled longing. <clears throat> he wants us to have an inward realization. Again, I say a foretaste, because the Spirit is the foretaste. This is what it's like. This is what it will be like. When the Lord has his longed-for counterpart. We know from Hebrews 12 that when the Lord was on the cross, there was a joy set before him. As far as I know, it is not explicitly revealed what this joy set before him was. But I personally have to believe it was the ultimate issue of his redemptive death, the issue of his life-releasing death, the joy set before him was his wedding. He was not only dying because he loved sinners. That action on the cross was giving himself up for the church. There was nothing and no one on earth yet that could remotely correspond to his love or even respond to it. But our God is true to his nature. Even if there is no love in the universe, he cannot deny that love is the nature of his essence. And love is the inner substance of his being. I do believe he saw beyond the shame of the cross, beyond the suffering that only God can comprehend. He saw the outcome, a joy set before him. Surely that has to be the realization that as the result of his redeeming death and life-releasing death, through the proclamation of the gospel and the ministering concerning Christ, one by one, believers will come to know this is love that God gave his son for us. And then the love of God will be poured out in our hearts. And we can begin to respond. Because, and I'm very fond of this utterance, our love is a because love.
the three main writing apostles, John, Paul, and Peter, all end here. With Peter and 2 Peter 1, the full growth and maturity of life issues in love. With Paul, we know the emphasis in 1 Corinthians 13. With John, in a very real sense, John became the same as God in the attribute of love. So this apostle wrote down certain things for us that would make known to us the kind of love we're talking about. First John chapter 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested among us. We need a manifested love. This world needs to see the manifestation of love. In this, the love of God was manifested among us that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might have life and live through him. Verse 10. Herein is love. Not that we have loved God. But that he has loved us. And sent his son. As a propitiation. For our sins. These two verses are most precious. But they're somewhat of necessity, objective, testifying concerning God and his son. But verse 16 brings us to another dimension. And we know and have believed the love which God has in us. We need to know this personally. And believe this personally. And he who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. We all know John 3.16. God so loved the world. So by a kind of logic. We can consider. Well that includes me somewhere. God must love me because I'm part of the totality of the human race. And we know Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And we treasure this. And then we may reason rightly. I guess I'm included. He must love me. Because I'm a member of the church, part of the body. But neither of these two verses 
are sufficient for our knowing and believing the love that God has in us. For this, we need Paul again. Just remember what he was. And he could say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live in faith, the faith of the Son of God who loved me. The Son of God loved me. It has to reach this level. It's not something that's left to you to generate. It's not a superficial feeling. We need to know, as our brother, our pattern, Paul came to know. He loved me while I was the sinner, while I was destroying. He loved me and gave himself up for me. This is not individualistic, it's personal. In a courtship, the, the sister, the one the brother is pursuing out of love, she is not going to be moved if he testifies, I love humanity. <laughs> I love the churches. It's really good for the gospel's sake you love people. So good you love the church. What a step the God-man takes. And I'm old-fashioned. Brothers are men and should act like it. And take the first steps when he says, I love you. That's a human romance. The divine romance is much more personal. And Song of Songs is really emphasizing the personal side that leads us to the corporate expression. And there is a great need in us, and we might be somewhat reluctant to acknowledge it, especially the brothers. They might think it's unmanly. For some, we just may feel it's selfish, but it's not. We need to know the love that God has in us. We need to be able to say, he loved me 
He gave himself up for me. As the omniscient God, he knew everything. He bore my sins. He died for me because he loved me. And this is so crucial because of verse 19. We love because he first loved us. That's why I use the expression a because love. In our God-created humanity, we have the virtue of love, but it's been contaminated, and it's inseparable from the self. So this cannot be the source of our love for the bridegroom, our love in the divine romance. The source must be love as the nature of God's essence, love as the inner substance of God. And John came to realize this. The verses and say, we love God because he first loved us. He said, we love Whomever we need to love, we love because he first loved us. John was burdened that his spiritual children would know this and realize this. And some of us may need to pray, even tonight, not out of obligation, but out of yearning. Because there are at least some of us who know deep within. It's hard for you to say, he loved me and gave himself up for me. When I was 19, as a result of something that happened, I abandoned strongly any expectation of two kinds of experiences. I didn't believe they existed in reality, only in superficiality, which I couldn't tolerate. I gave up on love, and I gave up on enjoyment with joy. Sorry. That was the reaction to what had happened. And my feeling was, no one can love you the way you really are. They love you for what they think you are or what they want you to be. But if they know you as you are, that's the end of love. <laughs> so I decided I'll just settle for respect. Okay? Sorry, you'll respect whatever intellectual capacity I have. And this continued. 
but the Lord never gave up. Then in my early months of the church life in Los Angeles, someone called a hymn. And some of the lines go like this. Come and rejoice with me, for I have found a friend who knows my heart's most secret depths, yet loves me without end. Come and rejoice with me. I once so sick at heart have met with one who knows my case and knows the healing art. Singing that hymn in the church with the saints became an opportunity for the Lord to pour out love and it caused me to realize he loves because of what he is. Not because we are worthy of it. We elicit love from him because we're this and that. And this was a breakthrough in knowing God. And now I realize we love because he first loved us. So whomever we should love in whatever valid relationship we're in, marriage, family, we love that person. We are able to love that one because God first loved us. So my brothers and sisters, this has to be real to us. Maybe the Lord would lead some to pray, read, until the light shines in them, until they realize, he loves me, he loves me, God loves me. Then spontaneously, the love that he has for us reproduces itself. And creates in us the same kind of love toward him, toward the ones we're close to, then it develops toward all the saints, toward human beings, toward the lost, and even toward the enemies, at which time the love is perfected. It is this love in God that gives him the yearning to unite, mingle, and incorporate himself with us. So this is the love with the yearning that motivates him to become a man, but a lowly man, an approachable man, in order to court, to draw to himself, 
those who will be part of his bride. And tonight this yearning is still operating. It is the love in God that gives him the yearning to unite in life, mingle in nature, and incorporate in person with us. And it is the same love in us that gives us the longing, the yearning to unite, mingle, and incorporate with him. This is the love in the divine romance. This is the love in Song of Songs, which brings the lover of the Lord from stage to stage until she's fully matured. She is the reproduction of her beloved. And when she becomes the reproduction, she spontaneously is part of the corporate expression. A few weeks ago, during a weekend visit to Boston, I was asked to speak to a gathering of a good number of college students from the campuses around that area. It was held right on the Harvard University campus. The lecture room we used could seat 140, about 210 were there, many standing, at least 50 new ones. So here you have all these brilliant late teens, early 20-somethings, and this man from another time frame <laughs> talking to them. And my subject was the God of purpose and the purpose of God. So I showed them that God is a God of purpose. He has an intention, a longing to fulfill. And now what is God's purpose? So I told them directly, God's purpose is to get married. Amen. That is the will for which he created all things. So now we are at the heart of this. So after I share with you my present understanding of what it means to love the Lord we'll begin to take a tour of Song of Songs to trace the development of the seeker's responsive love toward her beloved and how this development of love makes her the reproduction of the Lord whom she loves. So what does it mean to love the Lord? I share with you, as I've shared before, some of you may know, 
does my present understanding of what is going on in us when we love him, as we love him, what is happening? So, <clears throat> an eightfold response to this question. What does it mean to love the Lord? To love the Lord is to appreciate him. Not for what he does mainly. Just for the person he is. To appreciate him. The more we love him, the more we will truly treasure him, appreciate him. To love the Lord, second, is to set our being on him. When this brother, who's courting his sister, reaches a point where he loves her, he loves only her. Of the somewhere between three and four billion females on the earth, only she matters. His being is set on her. And when he decides to marry her, he is saying no to every other female he will ever meet. Because love causes us to set our being on the one we love. So our because love for God causes us to appreciate Christ, then increasingly we center our being on him. To love the Lord this is the third point, is to open to him. I suppose there are experts, I'm told, on body language. So let's say a brother is letting the sister know he loves her, and she says, I also love you. <laughs> well, if so, why don't you say, I also Love you. To love the Lord is to open to him. Please be assured the Lord will not pry you open. That is contrary to his nature and the way he relates to us. This love is going to woo you. It's going to give you the security you need. So you open to him more and more. If you just say, Lord, I love you, I open this much, he would say, this much is good. And then eventually, it's without hesitation, without condition, you trust him. Okay? If you can't, Trust him to that extent right now. I assure you, he's not bothered. He knows us. But the more we love, the more we will open. The fourth matter 
To love the Lord is to enjoy him. It's almost a synonym at times when you say, I love Jamoka Amun Fudge ice cream. That means you enjoy it. That is not a personal testimony. <laughs> it's an illustration. I like it. I don't go around loving ice cream. Not even Kahlua cream cheese pie is worthy of love. So to love is to enjoy, to appreciate, to set your being on him, to open to him, to enjoy him. Now we go a little further with the second four. To love the Lord is to give him the first place in all things. But in actuality, it's a gradual development of one thing after another. He is first. He will, how could he marry a bride who knows in her heart, I love you, but not first. No bridegroom brother could go through with the wedding meeting. She says, I love you. But my first love came earlier. It's for someone else. You can't, you can't, you can't go on. So the first love involves giving the Lord the first place in one matter after another in all of our relationships. I don't have to list them. Six, to love the Lord is to be one with him. Love yearns to make itself one with the object of this love. So we want more and more to be one with him. Just as he wants to make himself one with you. That's in his heart. Then he wants to mingle and incorporate. So our because love responds. And we just have this desire to be one with him. And we just can't bear the unease of being separated from him. It's just not worth it. Number seven, to love the Lord is to live him. Paul said to me, to live is Christ. Because I love him, I will not live myself. I live this person. And the eighth point, no doubt about it, is the top point. To love the Lord is to become him. To be made the same as he is in this attribute of love. Now in Song of Songs, we have a poetic 
description in very romantic language of a personal, affectionate, developing, divine romance between a believer and the Lord whom she loves. Actually, the seeker here does not typify the church, but the individual believer, who eventually will become part of the corporate expression. Brother Lee completed the monumental task of the life study of the entire Bible in the summer training 1995. December winter training was on the crystallization study of Song of Songs, chapters one through six. He said openly, I leave chapters seven and eight to you, whoever the you was intended to be. He asked some brothers one afternoon to come be with him. And when he did that, we just stopped whatever we were doing for him or with him to honor his request to be with him. Then he shared with us, the Lord has given me two words to start this crystallization study. Personal and affectionate. And that's right in the very beginning. Personal and affectionate. So we need, on our part, to learn to be personal and affectionate with the Lord. Now let me just concentrate on the men brothers and let the sister brothers just listen in. I'll just tell you a little of my own learning. I'm really touched with personal and affectionate. But I didn't know, what do I do now? So I remember taking a walk early in the morning in the park. And I talked with the Lord. I said, Lord, I don't know how to be with you. I need you to teach me how to be with you personally. To begin with, you can see me, and I can't see you. Please guide me into this. To have the reality of being personal and affectionate. I want to be very careful here. But I do know many wives are just starving for this. Affection. Not just love in other forms. Wasn't that a lovely line in the hymn, with untold affection. The Lord has untold affection. Personal and affectionate. 
So talk about a personal and affectionate beginning. She starts with requesting a kiss. Not a peck on the cheek. Not a kind of cultural, you know, they do this. I don't know if they really kiss. They kind of just cheek each other, you know. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Not one time because a brother says, now you may kiss the bride. (laughs) Let him kiss me. I don't know who she's addressing. In other words, don't interfere with this. And the Lord surely wants to kiss her in a most affectionate way. Then she early on realizes something. Your love, it's better than wine. It's better than anything the Lord can give me to enjoy. It's one thing for me to say this. You can see in your heart, yeah. You're really an older person. You tasted all these things. Now you let us know it's better than wine. I kind of hear you. It's really powerful when you, a 20-something, can tell your peers his love is better than anything this world has to offer me. I'm not religious. I'm a lover of Jesus. Then she prays, draw me. We will run after you. Indicating from the very beginning her personal romance with the Lord has a context. And it will affect others. You draw me. Others will run after you. This is why loving the Lord is a body matter. It's a bride matter. Haven't you ever been in maybe a small intimate home meeting or other kind of fellowship? And you just realize the depth of the love in this sister for the Lord or this brother And when you leave, you're just freshly drawn to the Lord. No one exhorted you. This is just the effect. Lord, draw me. I need you to draw me. I don't trust in my energy to seek you all the time. Draw me. We will run after you. Then the Lord, he brings her into His chambers, they have a very sweet initial enjoyment. Then he begins addressing her condition. And every word is in love. That's why she can take it without having this sense of, oh, I just got an owie, what he said. He said, oh, my love, (sighs) you're like a horse. (laughs) 
a strong horse in one of Pharaoh's chariots. So much energy. And she's not bothered, she realizes. That's just right. But he said, oh, my love. He didn't say, you're a horse. I can't relate to you. (laughs) My love. You're just like a mare drawing one of Pharaoh's chariots. There's no sign that she said, what kind of courtship is this? (laughs) On our first date, he calls me a stallion. (laughs) But when it's love, backed by reality, you, you just receive it. But before too long, You see, he doesn't wait until she's about to be raptured to encourage her. What kind of parent would it be? His bright son goes to preschool. And the father doesn't say anything encouraging until he's receiving his PhD. They're putting the hood on him, right? Then he says, you did a good job. In Song of Songs, again and again, the Lord indicates to her her progress. And he he has a way of doing this with us. So before too long, he says, hi, Lily. You're a lily among thorns. You just live by trusting God. Then he pays attention to her eyes. Your eyes are like dove's eyes. The Lord pays attention to eyes. The eyes say a lot. Eye contact is not an easy thing. To sustain. Most of us cannot bear it for more than a few seconds. But he appreciates your eyes are a sign of spiritual insight. You do have some spiritual understanding. Then before too long a time, He says, you're my dove, but you're in the clefts of the rock. And this was after a period of time where she lapsed into introspection. And the Lord comes leaping and skipping like a hind let loose, like a deer on the mountains. says, come away. And she doesn't respond. But he doesn't give up. So now she's a dove. By the power of resurrection. Living a crucified Christ. It is her love. That enables her to advance. Love is the unique motive. So because she loves him. She 
quite soon is no longer a horse, but a lily. Now she's finally willing to be conformed to his death as a dove. And the Lord says, let me see your countenance. Let me hear your voice. There is something lovely now in your countenance and your voice. Then there's quite a period of time where the Lord is apparently hiding, silent. And then we're in chapter 3. Who is this who comes forth from the wilderness like a pillar of smoke, perfumed with all the fragrant all the fragrances of the merchant. She's now a pillar. She can bear responsibility. And then shortly thereafter, she's his couch. And she's among the mighty men protecting his interests. Then she becomes a palanquin. Then in chapter 4, she's a garden. And Christ is beautifying her. One day, I assure you, the Lord whom you love will speak Song of Songs 4-7 to you. The verse says, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no blemish in you. Doesn't that make you think of Ephesians 5? Christ is sanctifying us by the washing of water in the word. No scars, no wrinkles, no blemishes, no defects will remain. We will be absolutely, stunningly beautiful. Not only outwardly, but inwardly. First Thessalonians says, our hearts will be perfected in holiness. I just imagine the following. The bride has been raptured. She's altogether beautiful. No spot or wrinkle or any such thing. She's become the reproduction of the bridegroom. It may be the Lord will summon the adversary and say, come here. Look at her. Look at her, my bride. This is the one into whom you injected your evil, sinful nature. You satanified her. You made her your child. Filled with the principle of rebellion. Look at her now. I redeemed her. I transformed her. I perfected her. I see no defect in her. What do you see? You won't answer. Then I expect the Lord will say, 
Now I give to her my authority to deal with you. Song of Songs, chapter 6. Beautiful as Tirzah, lovely as Jerusalem, terrifying as an army with banners. This is what we're becoming. But we become a garden in which Christ is growing himself. And in this garden, there's this spring flowing with living water. And then we're able to pray as never before. Lord, let the wind come. Warm, cold wind. Blow upon my garden. So that the spices may flow. Then she says, come, my beloved, into the garden. And he comes to enjoy what he has worked into her being. All of this, every point, will take place in you. This is your biography. We're all somewhere. On the one hand, our progress is linear in that it begins one point and goes on a line to the end. On the other hand, it's cyclical. And that we go through cycles of ever-deepening experience. Then at the end of chapter 6, she has a new name. Shulamite. Feminine form of Solomon indicating she is now the reproduction of Christ, her beloved. This is chapter 6. But it's not the end of the book. Chapter 6. Then in chapter 7. She becomes. His co-worker. And two of my favorite verses. Are in this chapter. They might be verses 11 and 12. She says. Because she's so one with him. She says. Come my beloved. Let us go forth into the fields. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us rise up early for the vineyards. Let us see if the vine has budded, if the blossom is open, if the pomegranate is in bloom. There I will give you my love. You know what she has now? She has the first works. In Revelation 2, the Lord rebuked Ephesus for leaving the first love. But he said, repent and do the first works. The first works are our actions of service that are motivated by the first love and that express the first love. And now she's here. She's his counterpart. She knows his heart. So it seems she's out of order, but no, it's very sweet to him. 
for, her, for, he, for him not to have to say to her, but for her to know what's in his heart and say, my beloved, let's now do a work for the whole body of Christ. Let's go forth and right in the midst of the labor, right there, I'll love you. What I'm doing will not interfere with this divine romance. While we are laboring for the body, I will give you my love. What a, what a marvelous utterance. But the peak is in the next chapter. Chapter 8. And now the only thing left for her personally is to be raptured, to be transfigured, to have a new body. This was Paul's longing in 2 Corinthians 5. It's hard when you're trying to build up muscle mass and be buffed and to lift weights in front of a full-length mirror to not really be quite occupied with your body. There will come a time when you realize I want a new one. (laughs) I'll sustain the present one, but my hope is not in this. It's in being transfigured and raptured to see him. And then she asks him, I need you to preserve me. I don't trust I can preserve myself. Set me as a seal on your heart, on your arm. Then I bear witness to her next discovery. She says, love is as strong as death. And such a love has a proper jealousy. It's like a flame of Jehovah. Many waters cannot quench love, nor do floods drown it. Now the love in her is no longer just a spark in chapter 1. It's a flame, an inextinguishable flame. And I shouldn't say too much, but this has been quite a year in my journey in Song of Songs. And I saw death at close range, firsthand, when she breathed her last, her spirit and soul left to be with the Lord in paradise. They closed her eyes, then honorably took care of her. Death is powerful. It is death that takes. The Lord receives. Because he is the Lord even over death. But that's not the end. In another time, in another situation... Some of you might hear the story. 
God did something else starting in June. And now in me is love like a fire for God, for the church, for the saints, and for her. It's all the same love. And again and again, lines from a hymn have been coming up. Hymn 204, one stanza says something like this. I, I love thee so, I know not how my transports to control. Your love is like a burning fire. Within my very soul. Your love is a fire. This is the full development. Of the love that's making us. The reproduction of our beloved. It's the flame of God. And by the Lord's kindness. In response to a prayer. That he give me a hymn. To a certain melody. In 1994, about that time, he gave me that hymn, On Jesus, Lord, I'm Captured by Thy Beauty, and stanza two. May the flames of God consume me till my being glows with thee alone. Eventually, you don't have to stoke it up. This does not have its source in our emotion. It has its source in the spirit. It will be expressed through our Christ-saturated emotion. It's a flame of God. Then we have the assurance Many waters cannot quench it. The floods will not drown it. The waters will come, and they have come. The floods came. But what remains after the attack of death is the burning love in the divine romance. And this fire, this love, is burning in our bridegroom. And he is producing this in us. And it doesn't matter where we are. Don't try to figure out where we are. You can ask the Lord where you are. The crucial thing is we are becoming. We are growing. We are progressing. We're advancing. So if a new stallion comes up to the microphone during the prophesying time in about 15 minutes, let's just love the stallion. You may say, oh, we realize. But we know before long, next time you see her, Lily, give her another year. Dove, pillar, mighty man, couch, 
palanquin, garden, heavenly bodies, lovely as Jerusalem, beautiful, terrifying to the enemy, Shulamite, co-worker. This is your future. Your past failures are just that, past failures, forgiven by God and forgotten. Your future is glorious in the divine romance. Now I read through the outline and be done at least by 9.05, I think. I do not prophesy, I think. Because the outline is emphasizing certain aspects that we can now address. As the reproduction of Christ, the loving seekers of the Lord become the sanctuary of God. The reference to the two cities indicate this. Through her living in Christ's ascension, as the new creation in resurrection, the lover of Christ, that's you, becomes mature in the riches of the life of Christ so that she becomes the building of God and its safeguard, the holy city. So now the Lord indicates to her, you have become part of God's building. You are the dwelling place, you're part of the city. To become the sanctuary of God is to be built up related to the building up of the body of Christ in the growth in the life of Christ with its unsearchable riches unto eternity. So she is progressing so that she can now be built up with anyone with like experiences. She is now buildable. This is a great advance where you realize the Lord can place you anywhere and because of your advancing in the Lord, you can be built up with anyone according to God's arrangement. So now she's part of the city and she's part of the dwelling place. In the Old Testament, the building of God is typified by Tirzah and Jerusalem. In the New Testament, this building is the organic body of Christ. So she is now one who knows the body, who lives in the body, and for the body. Ultimately, the building up of the organic body of Christ, which is also Christ's wife, will consummate the new Jerusalem, the holy city, as the consummation of the holy of holies, the mutual dwelling of God and his redeemed in eternity. And C helps us focus. She becomes the sanctuary of God, and the Holy of Holies is God himself. The glory of God is actually there. 
The sanctuary of God is the holy of holies, which is God himself. When she becomes the holy of holies, she becomes the same as God in that she is now God's dwelling place, even as God is her dwelling place. When we enter into the holy of holies, we enter into God and become the sanctuary. So this is a major advance. This is entering into the fourth stage of the experience of Christ. She has passed through thoroughly the stage of the cross. Now she knows the body. She lives in ascension. She is reigning in life. And she can engage in warfare. Exactly meeting the requirements of Christ's bride-to-be. They are maturity. Being built up. Being beautiful. And being real good at fighting enemies. I don't know of any brother courting a sister. Brothers have a list in their mind. They may be either reading the teleprompter when they're talking to her. They have a sister. I don't know of any young brother who said, well, I'm really looking for a sister who's really adept at war. <laughs> but the Lord wants a beautiful, mature, built-up wife, clothed in fine linen, which is Christ expressed through her as righteousnesses. And yes, she's very good at fighting because he knows he's going to rapture her. Then they get married. The wedding feast begins. Then after about three and a half years, he's going to say something like, dear, we've got to go on a trip. But where are we going? Where are we going to Armageddon? What do we do at Armageddon? Well, we got to deal with the enemy. Well, you know, the female has to ask, well, what do you wear for Armageddon? <laughs> and he will say, dear, your wedding dress is just fine. <laughs> because it is now your military uniform. Amen. So come, my dear, let's go and deal with the enemy. Amen. So now the bride becomes the army. Dealing with the enemy. Then the army, the same person, becomes the stone with Christ to eliminate human government. Then the stone becomes a mountain filling the whole earth. But it all begins. The final countdown begins with the rapture of the bride. And that depends on the building up of the body. That is the preparation of the bride, the, the same reality. When the Lord realizes the bride is ready through the overcomers in the churches, he will come secretly, rapture her, marry her, have the wedding feast. The great tribulation is taking place. Israel's situation will be hopeless. They will not be able to rely on their defenses. They will fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah by praying, Lord, rend the heavens and come down. Then the Lord will descend 
with his warrior bride. And speaking personally, I want to be there. I really believe this. This is the word of God. I stake my life on this. So she becomes, now, God's building. She knows the reality of the body. So she is maturing. When we enter into the Holy of Holies, we enter into God and become the sanctuary. That is, we become God in life and nature. John 14, 23 and Ephesians 3, 17 prove that the God whom we are pursuing is making us his duplication. For God to make us his duplication means that he makes us his dwelling place is holy of holies. So now, in the divine romance, she's the reproduction of Christ. She's part of the corporate expression of Christ. God can just come and settle down in her, even as she lives in him. Now, the second point. As the reproduction of Christ, the loving seekers of the Lord become a corporate Shulamite. So, this is the goal what we're heading toward. Song of Songs 613, Shulamite. Then at that point, we have the necessary maturity. We are his reproduction. We are his co-worker. And then we just long for rapture with a love as strong as death. In the maturity of Christ's life, the lover of Christ becomes the Shulamite, signifying that she has become the reproduction and duplication of Christ to match him for their marriage. Okay, match. I do believe the whole universe. Maybe that will be the, the faithful angels. When they see this couple, they will say, what? A perfect match. What a, what a beautiful couple. And then, maybe for the first time, at least in the culture I'm familiar with, <clears throat> they won't be singing, here comes the bride. They'll be singing, here comes the bridegroom. In all the worldly weddings... The bridegroom is standing there like a statue. <laughs> when the bride comes in, everyone stands, everyone looks. It's all on the bride. The whole thing is upside down. <laughs> the bridegroom is coming. Behold the bridegroom. What a declaration in Revelation 19. I wonder if God is saying, we finally did it. The bride has made herself ready. Amen. Then the bridegroom comes. And the bride takes the lead to divert all attention to him. Then the Lord will have a way of honoring her. 
You are altogether beautiful, my love. Song of Songs 4-7. There is no blemish in you. What a deep feeling she will have. Knowing her history. How she began. But what's important is not a, where we are at the start, but how we finish. Just ask the Lord in simplicity, make me part of this corporate Shulamite. Lord, please give me the experiences I need to become the Shulamite. Shulamite is a feminine form of Solomon indicating that now the overcomers have become the same as Christ in life, in nature, in expression and function, but not in the Godhead or the carrying out of God's economy. Now the whole age will change. And the bride, who will be the army, who will be the stone, will become the mountain. And there will be the greatest dispensational change the earth has ever seen. Satan will be in the abyss. We will have the power of the coming age to heal, to cast out demons. No more war for a thousand years. Then the dumb devil will be released. He hasn't changed in a thousand years. It'll be the final test of the people born during the millennium. Then the enemy is destroyed. New heaven and new earth. New Jerusalem as the wife and as the bride. And the story ends this way. They lived happily ever after. <laughs> In a never fading, never dull, divine romance. To the Bible reveals that God became a man to court us. Now listen to this. And now he wants us to court him. By our becoming divine for his expression. Through our personal, affectionate, private and spiritual relationship with him. So he courted us by becoming man. If he came as God, we would all be terrified. He would have to manifest his holiness, righteousness and glory. We couldn't take it. So he became, let's remember, a Nazarene, a Jew, to this day, sorry to say, increasing in Europe, anti-Semitism. But my Savior is a Jew, the son of David. Born into poverty, worked as a carpenter. The oldest of at least seven children. He became such to make himself so approachable. I'm glad he wasn't physically gorgeous to intimidate almost all of us. He became a man to court us. Now he wants us to become God for his expression. And this will woo him. He would say, wow, she loves me. Didn't that touch you when you realized the sister loves you? 
Then she kind of walked around a little bit in a daze. She loves me. I can understand why I love her. But to me, it's a miracle that she loves me. I'm talking about a real situation here. It's amazing. And for the Lord to be able to realize, she loves me. Father, she loves me. Okay, we're coming to the end. In the sight of God, the Shulamite is like two camps or two armies. This refers to Jacob's forming into armies like he saw the angels dancing as two armies formed his people into two groups. They were all weak. The spiritual significance of the two armies is the strong testimony that we more than conquer. We, quote, super overcome through him who loved us according to the principle of the body of Christ. Super overcome, in quotes, is the literal translation of a verb in Romans 3.17 which says, in all these things, we more than conquer through him who loved us. And the Greek word is huper nikao, to super overcome. More than conquer, not just barely make it. This verse connects overcoming directly with Song of Songs. It's the love in the divine romance that produces overcomers. He loved us. His love for us has made us those who more than overcome. And that's what she has become in Song of Songs. God does not want giants, those who are strong in themselves. He wants only the feeble ones, the weaker ones, because they're going to trust in him. Weakness itself doesn't qualify us, but it causes us to need him. Remember, an older brother, just in his fellowship, said something 40 years ago. I can't forget. He said, you need to be able to say to the Lord, I cannot live without you. I love you. And I cannot live without you. Then we will advance and say, Lord, I cannot live without you. And I cannot live without the body of Christ. All those who are strong in themselves will be disqualified. Those who are counted as overcomers will be the weaker ones who utterly depend on the Lord in the principle of the body. Paul told the Philippians, I know this will turn out to my salvation as long as you pray through your petition and the bountiful supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ. I'm not a hero here. He didn't say, I'm reigning over all of these things. I'm a super apostle. He said, this will turn to my salvation through your petitions. 
I'm depending on your petitions. At the end of a very painful period of suffering in 1974, when Brother Lee was able to function again, he shared something personal of how he prayed during that time, how God charged him to pray. He said, pray to be prayed for. Because Brother Lee was living in the body, the Lord knew that. And if no one prayed for him, the supply of the body would not reach him. And I was touched with that, but I decided I'm not going to mimic it. I can't do this in reality. But now I can. We cannot live without the body. We cannot live without the Lord. We are the blessed weaker ones, weakened to the point where we have no trust in ourself, in our ability, in our strength. She's on the verge of rapture, but she says, I need you to preserve me on your, with your heart, with your strength. So we pray to become overcomers as we should. You might think, well, when do I start overpowering enemies? And the first phase of the answer is to weaken you. He may say, Lord, I prayed to be an overcomer. And he may say, I know. I'm answering. Only those who are Weaken themselves. This is Paul. Again, the pattern. He said, when I am weak, I am powerful. He said, we are weak in him. So we're not ashamed of needing the Lord and of needing the body. All those who are strong in themselves will be disqualified. Those who are counted as the overcomers will be the weaker ones who utterly depend on the Lord and the principle of the body. Those who are counted worthy to be overcomers will be the weaker ones who depend on the Lord and who become his reproduction or his corporate expression. This has been an attempt to show something from Song of Songs, how with the because love, the Lord's love for us personally, a love is produced in us for him, for the saints, for the churches, for other people, even for the enemies. And this love is the unique motive that leads to the reproduction of Christ. Love is crucial. And when the love in you will reach the point, as it will, of being the flame of Jehovah, you'll realize nothing will stop me now. Because the unstoppable burning love of God is in my being. And I fully rest my whole being on him as a member of the body 
And I offer this, my final suggested prayer for tonight. Lord, please grant me the mercy to be faithful unto the end. So this is Song of Songs presentation of becoming the reproduction of Christ, the Shulamite, for the corporate expression of the triune God, New Jerusalem. Let's take a minute to pray again. Prayers of love, prayers of opening to become such a reproduction. <laughs>